0: time to start welcome we have to make uh, we have to make tracks we've got tonight and two more weeks three weeks total left and then just three counting tonight then the fourth week is Pinewood Derby for the kids so if you have children in the Pioneer Club they'll be doing that but we won't be having adult classes so just tonight and two more weeks for the classes this one of course is the good soil evangelism class and we are on page 25 In the story of hope, a workbook, got a couple of those left over here. Anybody need? Everybody have? All right, so we're just going to pick up and hopefully we're going to get into the New Testament then uh, tonight. And then the next two weeks, we will give an overview of the story of the New Testament. But the idea here is that we are going through this material that you have in that uh, notebook. And the idea is for you then to be able to go through it with someone else. So this is an evangelism class designed to help you understand the gospel, the, the full message of evangelism. But to be able to do that with someone, whether that's in a one-on-one setting where you might get together once a week with a person over a period of time uh, or in a, in a small group uh, at, uh, at work or in, uh, in your house with, uh, with your neighbors, but uh, that's, that's the idea. Now, the people who publish this material have this. This is their standard workbook but they have shorter versions so that you can go through the same kind of thing this overview of the whole message but do it in fewer in fewer lessons. So depending on the setting that you have then you might want to choose one of their other materials. When we get at the end, you'll be able to see those. And then one last thing, if you if you go through it whether short or long version, these guys provide a bunch of ma- materials, a bunch of helps for you. So there's a teacher's guide that you get a leader's guide with this manual, and then it gives you uh, things, to, things to say, things to think about, things to bring up, it gives you uh, other resources, other websites to go to. So if you're leading it in your preparation, you'd be able to look at that and you'd be able to get loaded for the, for the presentation that you're going to be making. So I'd encourage you to think about, think about uh, you know, is this something that I would like to do with someone or someones? We are hoping to use this at our church in a small group setting, in a home small group setting. So we're hoping to have a few of those over the years. And, of course, that's going to take people to to lead those. So we want to, every couple of years, have a class go through this. And then people like yourselves who've been through it and say, you know, I think I could do that, especially with the leader's guide and all. Uh, We're hoping we'll be able to have a number of those over the years. All right, so page 25 is where we left off. You see that this is... This is a lesson 14 at the top of page 25, and it's the plagues and uh, Passover. So when last we left off, last week, uh, the Israelites are in uh, Egypt, and they are in slavery in Egypt. God has called Moses to go and confront the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, to let his people go. And as the Bible story goes, uh, Moses does that. But Pharaoh refuses to let God's people go. And so God sends plagues upon Egypt to teach Pharaoh a lesson, really to teach all of Egypt and the entire world a lesson, that I alone, I the God of Israel, am the, uh, am the true and living God. And he does that by these nine plagues, each of which corresponds to one of the gods of Egypt. So, you know, one of the plagues is, is locusts, though there was a God of locusts, for example. And so God is showing that I am the true and living God, and in fact, I made the locusts, and this thing that you made to be the God of the locusts, in fact, is not really, is not really God. But nevertheless, even with those nine plagues, uh, Pharaoh does not relent, and so God then fi- finally, in the tenth and final plague, brings death to the firstborn of, of Egypt. And God says to the people of Israel that you will be passed over in this, in this plague if you apply the blood of, and He gives specific instructions about the kind of lamb, a lamb without defect that needs to be sacrificed, and the blood of that lamb is then placed on the doorpost, on the right, on the left, on the lentil, on the top, and then when I see that, I will pass over you. you your home will not be harmed. And as a result of that, that idea of Passover then is something that's celebrated to, to this day, but that's where it comes from. So page 25, the plagues and the Passover. To demonstrate His power over the false gods of Egypt and convince Pharaoh to release the Israelites, God imposed a series of dreadful plagues upon Egypt. The final plague in that series involved the death of the firstborn children and animals. And then you have Exodus chapter 12, And Exodus chapter 12, and the key verse that I want, to, uh, I want you to hear is verse 5. Exodus chapter 12 and verse 5. And it says this, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it from the sheep or from, from the goats, God says. But the key here is this lamb has to be a perfect lamb, one that's without, without a blemish, without blemish. So what were the required characteristics of this animal to be, to be sacrificed? Well, again, uh, without blemish, a male uh, of the first year, so a young male. And then what were the Israelites supposed to do with the blood? As I've already said, that's to uh, paint that, to spread that on the doorpost, on the right side, left side, and along the top. What sign would cause God to pass over a home? Without executing the plague of death, that would be seeing the blood, and thus he would pass over. And then God established this memorial that is known as the Passover. So that's the memorial. Down at the bottom of page 25 is the, the feast of Passover, the celebration of Passover, and that's an annual feast that the Jews to this day celebrate. Now, just a reminder, you see at the bottom of pages 24 and 25, if you lay out your, uh, your workbook, And it says, put a mark beside each of the ways that God is portrayed in the events of these pages. We're not going to take time to do that. I'm just reminding you that that's there. And that every time you go through one of these stories, that's something that you want to think about with each pairing of these these stories. Uh, how How is God portrayed? All right, page 26 then. As a result of all of that, as a result of all of that, Pharaoh relents, and the people are uh, are, are able to be uh, released from from Egypt. Do you need a workbook? Need a workbook? Oh no, I'm getting you a workbook. I'm getting you a workbook now. So watch me. I'm going to get a workbook. All right. Oh, you're good. I saw you heading over there, and I thought well, she's not leaving. That's a good thing, <laughs> yeah. unless she's going out the window. <laughs> there you are. Yeah, no problem. I guess I've just put the fear of god into everybody when I was embarrassing <laughs> folks when they forgot their notebook. But here's the thing: we only have two weeks left now, and we are out of notebooks. Okay? So that was the that was the last one. But yeah, uh, sorry, I scared everybody so much. <laughs> uh. Yeah. <laughs> you're good alright lesson 15 on page uh, 26 then Israel's exodus from Egypt so you have uh, you have Genesis and exodus is the second book of your Bible and it's so named because of this this event it's primarily about that it's about the Israelites exiting leaving the exodus from from Egypt and so top of page uh, 26 Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt as God parted the waters of the Red Sea, preparing their way toward the promised land of of Canaan. So that's found in Exodus chapter 14. In Exodus chapter 14, let's see, here's Moses. That's a picture of Moses and the Red Sea behind them as they're going through. And then uh, this is happening... If you can see, you guys have this on page 8 in your workbook if you can't see on the slide, but over on the far left where it says Egypt, on the very far left toward the bottom, just above where it says Egypt, that is the location where this is happening. So they're coming out of Egypt, and they come upon this body of water called the Red Sea, probably in that in that spot, and they're going to have to get across that, but... Pharaoh's army is now coming after them, and they've got water in front of them. So they've got a real problem. they got water in front of them, and they got Pharaoh's army behind them. So what's, what's going to happen? So first thing is, first question is, what caused the Israelites' boldness to be so quickly turned to, to fear? Well, it was because they realized that Pharaoh's army is, is now chasing them, is what caused them to, to be fearful. And then according to verses uh, 1 and 2 and 9 in that chapter, what was the name of the place? And the name of that place is uh, pi Haharoth. Uh, and so if you, can, if you can see that on your page 8, a little bit closer, but that's the, that's the name of, of the place. And then what expressions of faith according to verses 13 and 14 do you do you find here so here's verses 13 and 14 moses said to the people do not be afraid stand still and see the salvation of the lord which he will accomplish for you today for the egyptians whom you see today you shall see again no more forever the lord will fight for you and you shall hold your hold your peace and so what expressions of faith in god do we see in these words of of moses well he believed that The Lord who led them to that point is going to deliver them from harm at the hands of the Egyptians. He went so far as to say, these Egyptians you see here today, you're not going to see again. And the Lord's going to fight with you, and all you need to do is be still and fight for you, and all you need to do is be still and watch what the Lord Lord does. And then D, as you read the remainder of the chapter, look at the least... At least three major uh, miraculous acts that God performed in order to make it possible for the Israelites to escape the Egyptians and to leave leave Egypt. So, if you were to read through uh, verses 15 through 31, we don't have time to do that, but you would see a number of miracles. Here are here are three. Uh, There's the pillar of cloud, and as you read in this these passages you would see that God's presence was known by a pillar of cloud, represented by a pillar of cloud before the people. And that pillar of cloud that had been leading them moved behind them so that the symbol of God's presence was between them and the armies of Egypt behind them. So that God caused it to be dark on the one side of the cloud, light on the other side, and that kept the Egyptians from making contact with the Israelites. So that's one, the pillar of cloud, protected them, the symbol of God's presence. Secondly, the Lord divided the waters of the Red Sea so that they had that water in front of them. They have the Egyptians coming, but they're able to to go across. God dried up the seabed, creating, in effect, a roadway for the Israelites to escape. And then thirdly, after the Israelites crossed the Red Sea safely, the Lord closed the waters of the Red Sea to destroy the Egyptians Who were pursuing them? So they come. They figure we got a roadway here. We'll take it as well. But uh, the waters come rushing in. They are. They are drowned. Uh, So that's the the story of the Exodus and the crossing of the Red Sea. Now, sometimes people will say, um, you know, people who don't believe the Bible, they don't believe in God. They don't believe in the miracles that God did in in biblical times. And so they will say, you know, that just that just couldn't happen. I mean, you guys have ever heard the story of the little kid who comes from Sunday school and his parents say, hey, what'd you learn? And he says, oh, we learned about the Israelites coming out of Egypt, the kid says. And, uh, you know, they came upon this water and the Egyptian army's chasing them. And so Moses called together all the architects and the engineers and they built a bridge and then they went over the bridge, across the Red Sea, and then they blew the thing up while the Egyptians were, were coming over. And The dad goes, that's, that's what they taught you in Sunday school? And the kid goes, no, but you wouldn't believe what they taught me. <laughs> you know. So people scoff at, at these things. And on in, in a serious note, people really do scoff. And they try to say, look, the Red Sea, it couldn't have happened. It's too, too large. And so this must have been some other body of, of water. But the location just doesn't work. And they try to make it some you know couple of feet deep wadi, W-A-D-I-E, a wadi in Egypt. The problem is that the passage goes on to say, that the Egyptian army was drowned. So whatever it was they were going through (laughs) had enough water to to drown all the Egyptians. So here's the better way to go. Just go with what the Bible says, okay? I don't try to make up something uh, to make it fit what you want it to say. All right, page 27 and the Ten Commandments then. So now the Israelites are out of Egypt and they uh, are to go into the land that God had promised. Now, do you guys just... You need to remember, because the story fits together. That's the idea here, is to see the flow. That, that land was promised originally to Abraham. Remember, Abraham's the guy who God, he's, he's worshiping stones and idols in, in modern-day Iraq, in Ur of the Chaldees, that's on your map. And God calls him and says, you're going to go to a land that I'm going to show you. And that land is the land of Canaan, that we also know as, as Israel. Well, they have not been for 400 years in the land. They've been in slavery in Egypt. So now they've left Egypt and they're going to go back to the land. That's the idea here. So now they're heading back toward the land uh, and they're going to wind up in the wilderness as we will see uh, for a good while before they do that. While they're in the wilderness, top of page 27, in the wilderness between Egypt and Canaan, the the Holy Land, Israel, the Promised Land. God, the perfect Holy One, gave the Israelites a set of laws which express His hatred for what we know as sin. So that's the Ten Commandments. Most of us are familiar with the, uh, the Ten Commandments. But uh, just a, a couple of things about that. One, the, the Ten Commandments are an expression of the character of God. The reason these things are to be done or not or to be avoided, is because they are either consistent or contrary to the character of God. And that's what all of life, according to the Bible, is supposed to be. It's supposed to be aligned with God. It's supposed to be aligned with what God is like. We were made to be like God. Not to be God, but to be like God. Made in His image. To reflect Him back to Him. So His law then reflects those things that are consistent with His character. The Ten Commandments are ten key uh, commands and really principles from which the other laws in the law of God uh, emanate. So sometimes, you know, we we think of the Ten Commandments as if God's only got ten. (laughs) But the truth is, uh, He's got 613. In the law, the first five books of your Bible, they're called uh, the books of the law. And the Ten Commandments are found in Exodus chapter 20, you see here. They're also found in Deuteronomy, the fifth book, chapter 5, Deuteronomy chapter 5. But within those those books, you find uh, another uh, 603 commands or prohibitions, things you're not supposed to do or things God is commanding to be done. And those things are likewise expressions of the, the character of God. Even the Ten Commandments can so can be whittled down to two. Do you guys remember that? Because Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. This is the first and greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so you've got these two. And then Jesus says, from these two commands come all, hang all the law and the prophets. So even the Ten Commandments are expressions of loving God and loving neighbor. And you can break those ten down, in fact, into those which apply directly to our love for God and those which apply to our love for neighbor. You know, if you love neighbor, you shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not commit adultery. But if you love God, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not use the name of the Lord your God in vain. So God gives those as a regulate regulation, a gracious regulation for the nation that He has formed, Israel, that He is going to settle in their land, and they are going to be governed by God's God's law. And this is a gracious thing for God to, to provide for for them. All right, so I'm not gonna go through all of the ten. That's the that's the mm-hmm. idea there. Uh The other thing I want to tell you about these laws, though, is that the law of God has been done away when we get into the New Testament by Jesus because Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law. And so the law has been ended. You go, well, okay, does that mean I can murder someone? No, it doesn't because, remember, these are expressions of the character of God. The character of God hasn't hasn't changed but the regulating instrument of the law of God the greater law of God uh, is is no longer the the government by which his people are are regulated we have the Spirit of God now and the book of Galatians is really about this it's about you know the place of the old law and then the law that the Holy Spirit that resides in each Christian uh, regulating our behavior in conjunction with what the, the Word of God says. And nine out of the ten commandments, by the way, are repeated in the New Testament. So anybody know which the one that's not? It's the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. And this past Sunday was Easter, and I made a, a quick point of saying that the reason that we are worshiping on Sunday, the first day of the week, as opposed to Saturday, the seventh day, Sabbath, is because the day of worship changed when Jesus raised from the dead on the first day of the week. So that was a monumental change. So worship had happened for centuries on Saturday, on the Sabbath, but now it's happening on the first day of the week, which is one proof that something uh, something astounding happened on that day and that something is the resurrection of, of Christ. All right, so what do these laws reveal about the um You know, I said already, A, that God gave this extensive system of laws. What do they reveal about the nature and and character of of God? They reveal to us that God is holy. He's just. He's fair. In our culture, look at C there. Which of these laws are often violated? That would be all of them. (laughs) Okay. That would be the easy answer to that. This is why we're in business here, by the way, at the church, because they're all being violated all the time. What do these laws reveal about the nature and character of, of mankind? These serve as a kind of measuring rod for humanity in general and for us as individuals. When we honestly evaluate our lives in light of these moral standards, everyone falls short to one degree or another. So what do they reveal? Nobody, nobody meets God's standards. Nobody lives up to God's character, which was part of the reason for God to give these, was to show this is my character. I made you to reflect my character, but still after all of this time, after me destroying all flesh except eight people, Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives, and all of that, we still don't have anybody who's doing this. So it's continuing to push forward to look forward to someone who's going to come along and who's finally going to do what we were made to do. And then look at E, bottom of page 27. How many of God's laws would need to be broken for a person to be guilty of doing wrong, to have sinned? And remember Adam and Eve. And they were given one command, they broke it. <laughs> okay. And then all of the consequences that go with that. If you care to, you could jot down James chapter 2 and verse 10. James chapter 2 and verse 10. That is in your uh, New Testament, James 2.10, but it, um, it says that if you break one of God's commandments, you break one of them, you're guilty of all of them. So how many do you have to break? That would be one. Okay. So the standard is incredibly high. The stan- standard is infinitely high. And anyone who thinks that then they can meet God's standard, given all of that history, is, is fooling themselves. And yet, that's what, would you agree that that's what most people that you're going to encounter to try to go through this material, that's what they believe? That for me to stand before God means i got to live good enough for Him to approve of me. And you don't stand a chance. No one stands a chance. And that's what the Bible over and over again is, is proving to us. All right, pa- page 28 and number 17, and that is now the tabernacle in the wilderness. We're still in the wilderness. God directed Moses to build a portable place for worship where the Israelites could go to offer sacrifices and to receive forgiveness of of their sins. So you find that recorded in Exodus chapter 40 and in Leviticus uh, chapter 1. So those are the first three books of the Bible. Genesis we've seen, Exodus now, now Leviticus, and Exodus chapter 40. Here you've got God giving instructions for the tabernacle. Now back on page 10, there is a... that thing. And that is a schematic of the, of the tabernacle. And God gave instructions... For what was to, to go in it and where it was to be placed. So you see this fence uh, around it. Later, this design is going to be the basic design for a more permanent structure, the temple. The temple. This is a mobile tent that they carry with them in the wilderness and they set up from time to time. But this is going to be the basic structure for in Jerusalem for the temple. And you see this fence that goes, goes around. Well, outside of that in the temple is going to be a court called the outer court or the court of the Gentiles. If you're a Gentile, you can't go in what we're looking at, looking at here. Only, only Jews could, could do that. And then the first thing that you see when you, when you go in is you see that, that square item there on the, on the left, and that's an altar to offer sacrifice. So in order for you to move further into the pre- toward the presence of God, which was the idea here, then you're going to have to have your sins covered. And so a sacrifice is required to do that. Now, we've already seen in the story this idea of the death of someone else uh, on behalf of another sin uh, taking place. Do you remember with Adam and Eve, God gave them skins to cover them? And so apparently killed an animal to do that. So God sacrifices an animal on their behalf. And then we've seen the Passover today. So you have a a lamb without blemish that's sacrificed, and then the blood goes on the doorpost for the sake of other people. Now this sacrifice, God gives instructions, and he says, when you give this sacrifice, you are to put your hands on the head of the animal. And the reason is, the idea is your guilt is being transferred. That's the, that's the laying of hands. Your guilt is being transferred to the animal. So this idea of substitution you see throughout the, you see throughout the Scriptures. And then you have this uh, basin to, to clean uh, yourself uh, before you go into the holy place. So you see that smaller compartment now there and then you see yet a smaller compartment uh, inside the holy place which is called the most holy place and in the most holy place you see in the back there you've got it's it's this box and then it's got these two angelic features Uh, these are cherubim and there's the lid on the top of the box and the lid is called the mercy seat and only the high priest could go in there and he could sprinkle blood once a year for all the sins of the people on the, the mercy seat. And above that, the presence of God. Remember the pillar of the cloud? Would be, above, would be above that. So this is where God met with his people, is in this way. But it required still sacrifice, it required, uh, it required ritual. It required cleansing, all of that, demonstrating God's holiness and our unworthiness over and over and over again. Inside the box are the Ten Commandments, the tablets of the Ten Commandments. There is the rod inside the box that Aaron used when he assisted Moses in his confrontations with with Pharaoh are inside the box, and that box is called the Ark of the Covenant. So it is a sign of the times that when I tell these Bible stories, I have to refer to movies. <laughs> so when I talk about the Ten Commandments, I have to mention Charlton Heston and Yul Brenner and all of that. So raiders of the lost, that would be this, okay, looking for the lost, the lost Ark. Um, and in fact, uh, there was a period of time where the the ark was not in the possession of the Israelites. And we're going to see someone who did capture it and bring it back into the possession of the Israelites. And uh, there's a big celebration for that here in just a, just a moment. Okay, So God directed them to, to do this. So the tabernacle be there on page 28 was a place of worship, but also a place where a person's sin could be atoned, covered. By offering a sacrifice from his herds of cattle and goats, flock of sheep, or birds. The sacrificial animal dies die as a substitute to atone for the person's sin. And all of this was designed uh, to emphasize this principle that someone is going to, there's going to have to be some payment made for your, for your sin. And so I already mentioned C, the events, events 8 and Fourteen. those are the sacrifice the Lord made for Adam and Eve and also the Passover lamb uh, sacrifice. So if you look on page 29, page 29 now, yeah, page 29, the bronze serpent. And this is from Numbers. This is the fourth book in your Bible now. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and now Numbers. On their way toward Canaan, the Israelites rebelled against God and were punished with deadly serpent bites, but God graciously graciously provided a remedy. Now what's that about? So God brings them out of Egypt and He says, you're going to go into the promised land that I gave to your forefathers. And they get to a place called Kadesh Barnea. So if you look on your map, I might have the map here again, let me see. Look at that, right? So if you look at the far left, the Great Sea, the Mediterranean, and then just to the right of that, you've got that rectangle, that's, the, that's Canaan, that's the, the promised land. And just below that is Kadesh Barnea. So they, they've come out of Egypt, They've come across the Red Sea, they're in the wilderness, Kadesh Barnea, and and they're supposed to go on in. But instead, the story goes, they decided to have to see if the season was a good one to do what God says. (laughs) So they decide to send 12 spies in. Do you guys remember this? To check out the land. Now, God told them, go in, and you're going to take it. There's already people in there, the Canaanites. Uh, the people who were in there were, were horrible people. And so sometimes people have an ethical question about, you know, God going, telling His people to go in and take this land from these people. But uh, God was judging justly what these people had been doing for a very long, long time. But the Israelites are afraid to do it. So of the 12, 10 of them come back and say, uh-uh, nothing doing Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, say, no, we can do it. We can do what the Lord Lord says. But they decide not to do it. And as a result of this, God punishes them. And part of the punishment is what you see here, these serpent bites. But also the fact that they're not going to wander. They have the opportunity to go in early on in the journey after coming out of Egypt. Now you're going to wander for 40 years. 40 years. 40 years. Now, why 40 years? The book of Numbers actually tells you that. If you were to jot down Numbers 14, 34, Numbers 14, 34, Numbers chapter 14, verse 34, you're going to wander one year for every day you delayed. Because that whole spying expedition was a 40-day spying expedition. So you didn't believe me, says God, you're going to wander for for 40 years. For forty days, so that's what they so that's what they do, and as part of that, God judges them with the whole forty year wandering, but also then with these, with these uh, bites. Now, in Numbers chapter twenty one, there are a bunch of uh, issues that are that are surfaced there: sin, uh, sin of unbelief and rebellion. The people spoke against God and against Moses. It says, "Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food, no water." Our soul loathes this worthless bread, so they're complaining. Judgment, so God sent fiery serpents among the people, bit the people, many of them died. Confession, therefore the people came to Moses, we have sinned, we've spoken against the Lord and against you. There's a prayer for deliverance. Pray to the Lord that He'll take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, God provided. The Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and it'll be And it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. And then there's this next item, faith. So Moses made a bronze serpent, put it on the pole, and so it was if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, life occurs, he lived. And all of that, what did an Israelite have to do in order to be saved from death? He simply had to believe God. And he had to look. As as God said, notice how how there's no effort on the part of the Israelite. here. God's teaching us a lesson that you are saved, you are delivered, you are rescued, not by what you do, but what I do for you. And you believe me. That's what's being taught here. Now, the serpent on a pole. Any of you guys have blue cross, blue shield? You ever notice that kind of weird, you know, the pole and it's got the snake on it? It goes back to here, okay? So... Whenever you think of that, think of Numbers chapter, chapter 21. Why they haven't been sued you know, by the ACLU for that, I don't know. <laughs> but, <laughs> but there it is. It's this religious thing right there on your insurance card. So keep this bottom then of page 29. Keep this in mind. Later in the Bible's unfolding story, a very important teacher, <laughs> that would be Jesus. <laughs> we'll refer back to it and we'll explain the prophetic significance of this event. All right, page 30. The reign of King David. From Second Samuel now. After the Israelites did enter Canaan, God ruled them through judges and kings, including King David, whose kingdom God promised would endure forever through one special descendant of of David. So you've got the reign of King David. So 40 year wandering, but they finally do enter into the promised land. And Moses, who has been leading them for these these 40 years, is not going to go into the promised land with them. Uh, The fifth book of your Bible, Deuteronomy, ends with Moses, who led them out of Egypt and has been with them for these 40 years. Moses at the, a mountain, Mount Pisgah, and he's able to look into the promised land. But he dies, Moses does, on that, on that mountain. And it's going to be his successor, Joshua. Now, I gave you Joshua's name a little bit ago. He was one of the two spies who said, yeah, we can do what God said. <laughs> and so Joshua is now going to lead the people into the promised land. Uh, that's the sixth book of your Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. And Joshua is about the, the conquering of Canaan and the peoples there. And as you go and you read that, they, they lose some battles because they disobey God, but they win most of the battles. Ultimately, they're, they're able to, to take over. One of the first things that happens when Joshua takes the mantle of leadership from the now past Moses, is that they have a body of water parted for them. You know, it's not, it's not as well known in your Bible as the Red Sea parting, but actually the Jordan River parts. So have you ever, have you ever thought about that? The fact that the Jordan River parts for Joshua so that they can go into the, the promised land. But uh, most scholars believe, I believe, that one of the reasons God did that was to put his seal of approval on Joshua. I mean, think about your Joshua, you've got to take over for Moses. I mean, those are some serious sandals to, <laughs> to fill, right? And so God puts his seal of approval on, on Joshua. They go in, they, they, they take the land, they're ruled by uh, judges and, and kings. The ruling of the judges is a lousy period. That's the seventh book in your Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. And you just read through the, ju- the, the book of Judges, 21 chapters worth, and it's depressing. And it says, in those days Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Think about living at a time when everybody does their own thing. So do you guys see that? <laughs> so do you guys, yeah, will we, we be there? Is that what you're saying? So remember me saying that though there's a cycle over and over again of God's grace and then then, uh, sin and then judgment, but then God's grace again. And you you keep seeing this over and, and over again. So the judges is a horrible period of time. God gives them a king. The first king is a man named King Saul. But the second king and the greatest king is this one, David, on page 30. Israel was ruled in Canaan by several judges, then later by a series of, of kings. David, the second king, was the greatest and godly, godliest of them all. Let me just stop there. Do you guys notice that? He's the greatest and godliest of them all. So, how godly was David? Would that be perfectly godly? Actually, uh, David could let power go to his head, couldn't he? Because David could do with what he wanted. And that meant literally anybody in the kingdom. That meant included any woman in the kingdom. And so he had uh, had, uh, Bathsheba sent for and seized. Because he had the power to do it. So here's a guy who's one of the best kings (laughs) who's doing that. And so he takes another man's wife and then seeks to cover it up, and then that that man is killed in battle uh, as a result of this, all of it horrible. David repents. One of the passages elsewhere in your Bible is, is Psalm 51, Psalm 51. And Psalm 51 is written by David, this very King David. He wrote a bunch of the Psalms in that book. And Psalm 51 is David repenting of this. So I just highlight that because even the best of the kings don't measure up by a long long way. And so you've got 2 Samuel chapter, chapter 7. There's David the king. The Lord tells you that he will make you, David, a house when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers. I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So what are we talking about there? Well, look at A. What kind of house did David want to build for God? He wanted to build a physical structure. If you read through that passage, uh, God tells him you're not going to be the one to do that. You're not going to build this physical structure for me. Actually, one coming after you is going to do that, and his son Solomon ends up building Solomon's temple after uh, after, after David. So that's the kind of house that David wanted to build. B, be aware that house sometimes also refers to a person's descendants or lineage. So in this passage that I've just read here, what kind of house did God promise to establish for David? He says that I'm going to set up your seed after you. Who will come from your body and will establish your your kingdom? And then verse 16 says, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you, your throne shall be established forever. So what indication do we have that this house, this promise, extends beyond Solomon? That would be for the forever piece, right? (laughs) And let me ask you, has has David's throne been established forever uh, at any time in history? The answer is no. We still await that, and that's one of the prophecies that's going to be fulfilled in the future. So bottom of page 30, guess which Israelite tribe David was from? And here's the hint. Remember Israel's promise to Judah back in Genesis 49. So we saw this last week that Jacob, when he dies, and he has his 12 sons of the 12 tribes of Israel, and he says of one of those sons named Judah, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. To him shall be the obedience of the people. So you've got Abraham, his son Isaac, and then his son Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. He's got the 12 sons you see at the bottom there. But the one through whom the king is going to come is the tribe of Judah, and David comes through the tribe of of Judah. Which means, looking forward, there's going to be a descendant of David who's going to come in the future, who is also then, of course, going to be from, from Judah. So look at page 31. Here are prophecies of the coming Messiah. Prophecies of the coming Messiah. So this brings you to the end of the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament. So you go through all of that, you got all these promises that God has made, and now you've got these various predictions, these prophecies. Here are the prophets writing and looking forward to the one who will will come, predictions about him. So the prophecies were written some of them by Isaiah, some by Micah, approximately 700 B.C., 700 years before Christ. Some of them by King David. Remember I said David wrote a number of the Psalms. David lived about 1,000 years before Jesus came. Think how long an interval of 700 and 1,000 years is. Think of 1300 A.D. in in relation to today. 1300 was a long, long time ago. Right, no printing press in 1300. You know, any of that. Think of 1000 AD in relationship to today. All of these are considered by Bible-believing scholars to be messianic, referring to the coming of the Jewish Messiah. And so you have these predictions in the first part of your Bible, hundreds of years before, for this one who is, is going to come. And you see on page 31, these prophecies come from Isaiah chapter 7, chapter 9, chapter 52. Chapter fifty-three, and then also in in Micah chapter chapter five, so you've got a prophecy of his his birth in Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now. Remember, way back in Genesis, Genesis chapter 3 and verse uh, 15, and the Lord said after sin had entered into the human race, and God God is meeting out punishments to the man and to the woman and to the serpent, and He says to the serpent, I'm going to put enmity between your seed and her seed, the seed of the woman, and you will bruise His heel, but He's going to crush your head. There's going to be this one through, through the human race that's going to come who's going to conquer you well now Isaiah's picking up on that and he this one who is going to be born now he's prophesying 700 years before Jesus but he's saying this one is going to come and be born of a woman yes but born of a virgin so we're gonna have this miraculous birth that is going to produce the one that is is promised so that's the the connection between them now uh, I mentioned last week that, uh, you know, there's no man involved in this. Uh, it's, you know, it says through the woman's seed this is going to happen in Genesis 3. And now if it's going to be a virgin birth, um, and when you come to the New Testament, we'll see that the birth narratives, the birth stories about Jesus, that Joseph and Mary have not been married, they've not had physical relations together, and yet here she is expecting so it's a miraculous conception, a virgin con- conception. So sometimes the ladies are then quick to conclude that you know, if, if we just didn't have the men involved, <laughs> then we wouldn't have a sin nature passed on. Because that's what, that's what, that's what happens, is by virtue of this miraculous virgin conception, when Jesus is conceived, there is no sin nature passed on to him. Now, again, sometimes people conclude, so the sin nature comes through the man. Huh. When the ladies go, go figure. You know. <laughs> but it, it's not that the sin nature comes through the man, but rather the sin nature comes through uh, the conception process, that the soul is passed on. Through the procreation process, through conception. And God interrupts conception in order for that not to happen in this miraculous case. So it's not that the man's more sinful than the woman. Sorry, ladies, to, to disappoint you. But it's rather that, that, and that's why every child that is conceived of, of human parents is indeed have, does indeed have a, a, a sin nature. And Jesus did not. Uh, So this serves as a sign, but it also serves practically to keep a sin nature from being passed on to this promised promised Messiah. And then, so that's his birth, and then there is his birthplace, Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, uh, Ephrathah though you are little among the thousands of Judah yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel whose goings forth are from old are from of old from everlasting so this is 700 years before this is Micah he's he's prophesying and he is uh, saying that the one to come is going to yes come through Judah so he's going to come through the lineage of Judah and those sons we're all given parcels of land in the Promised Land. So there's actually a place called, a section called Judah, named after the son whose descendants were given that piece of the Promised Land. And within Judah, one of the cities is this one, Bethlehem. And Micah is saying that the Messiah is going to come through there. So he's going to come through the line of Judah, but he's also going to be born in the territory of Judah in the city of of Bethlehem well how is uh, how does how's that all gonna happen Um, you know for well we're going to see when we get to the New Testament that God makes that work for Mary and Joseph to wind up in Bethlehem even though that's not where they live but he works through circumstances to get them there for this prophecy to to be fulfilled All right, so you can see where Bethlehem uh, is so down toward the bottom You've got the body of water there, and just to the left of that, it says Bethany, and just to the left of Bethany is Bethlehem. So Bethlehem is just south of Jerusalem. That's the area we're talking about in the promised land, but in the area called called Judah. And then there's his ministry in Galilee. That's predicted in Isaiah chapter 9. His death is predicted by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. I read some of that in our Easter service uh, this past Sunday. His resurrection is also spoken of in Isaiah, but also in Psalm number 16, and then his eternal kingdom in Isaiah chapter 9. So all of these are predictions of one to come, and that one to come now we know as none other than Jesus of Nazareth. So if you turn to page 32... We finally get to the New Testament and the birth of Jesus. And those are, that's recorded in Matthew chapter 1 and in Luke chapter 2. First part of your Bible, the Old Testament then. That's kind of the sweeping over the last several weeks. We've looked at the story of how that unfolds, all pointing toward this one to, to come. And then you have 400 years between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. 400 years. There's nothing written. Nothing written that's included in in the Bible. And then the next time you open a book of the Bible after the end of the Old Testament, the first book in the New Testament is Matthew. And the first four books of your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Those first four are all about the life and ministry of Jesus. Those four. So the New Testament starts and is centered upon Jesus. So the Old Testament's all been pointing toward that. Now you come, you see that it's culminating in this this one and his his person and his work and his death and his resurrection. All the stuff that was predicted is centering on, on him. And then the rest of the New Testament is showing how his work is continuing in his world and is pointing toward his second, his second coming. And That's where we are now. We're in the process of doing his work in his world until he takes us home or he, he comes again. Okay. But that's all pointing toward the birth of, of Jesus of Nazareth in Matthew and Luke. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, really. If you have a red-letter edition of the Bible, then... You know what, a red letter edition. So the the letters are, the font is in red when Jesus talks. So red letter edition. Those became, those are like wildly popular. You can't find a Bible. I know this because I've looked. You can't find a Bible that doesn't have red letters. I'm personally not a fan of red letters. Why would I not be a fan of red letters? Um, Well, I'm just a curmudgeon. That would be one reason. (laughs) But aside from that, the truth of the matter is every piece of this book is equally God's Word. The words spoken by Jesus are not more God's Word than the words penned by Paul or Peter or Moses or anybody else. And I I think the red letters give the idea that they are. So I have the last copy on earth of black letter. I have one right here, okay? And I'm keeping this forever because you cannot find a non-red letter. But if you were just to flip through your Bible, just fan through the pages, you would see that pretty much all of the red letters are all in those first four books because that is dealing with the life and ministry of of Jesus. So keep your red letter edition. Just bear in mind what I've said about about that, okay? So the birth of, of Jesus... The beginning of the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now notice, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now these guys, as we went through the the storyline, those are a couple of pretty important guys, right? And so Matthew picks up with those guys because, remember, to David, God said, there's going to to be a king that's going to come through your line. There's going to be this king that comes through your line, and he's going to be the king that will rule forever. So David's obviously important. And so the credentials of the Messiah have to show that he's attached to David. But also, if you go back to Abraham, Abraham, in your seed... All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. See, what you have to do, guys, is you have to just give this steely look at the kids, and they go, and they go running. Now they, now they also think Christians are all mean, but, you know, sometimes you just got to do what you got to do, okay? So Abraham, God had said to him way, before, way before, before David, in your seed all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Well, this is going to come through the Messiah. The Messiah is going to have to be attached to Abraham. So remember, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, Jesus. So Matthew starts with David and and Abraham. And then he starts to go back. Abraham, we got Isaac, we got Jacob, we got Judah, just to show that, hey, we're on track here. Everything that's been said in the first part of the Bible, this is all coming together now in this one, uh, this one Jesus. So what special things do you remember about these ancestors of Jesus? I've already given that. And so here is Matthew 18. Now the birth of Jesus was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away away secretly. Meaning, okay, we're engaged. You've apparently, I mean, that's what he's thinking. You've apparently been messing around. That's what he's thinking but he doesn't want to embarrass her publicly. So let's just break off the engagement secretly. That's the idea there. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So she's not been with another man. That's what the angel is saying. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Here's why you will call his name Jesus. For because he will save his people from their sins. The reason his name is Jesus is because Jesus means God saves. So you'll call him that because that's what he's coming to do. Save his people from their sins. So you're going to give him this name. But it goes on. So all of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. That would be the prophet Isaiah that we've already seen. Back in Isaiah chapter 7, the virgin shall be with child, bear a son, and they shall call his name. But notice this. He's also going to be known as Emmanuel. What's Emmanuel mean? God with us. So his human name is Jesus, which means God saves. But he's got this title, Emmanuel, which which indicates God with us. This one who has come is none other than God, Emmanuel. And so that's what we see in the the birth of Jesus. Now, if we were to go to Luke chapter 2, middle of page 32, and you compare it to the prophecy of Micah 5. Now Micah 5 was the one that said he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And if you go to Luke chapter 2, here's what it says. Some of you know this. So Caesar Augustus issued a decree that all of the Roman world should be taxed, should that actually have to be counted in a census for tax purposes. That all the Roman world Caesar Augustus the emperor And what that meant was everybody had to go back to the home of their ancestry. So the home of ancestry for uh, Mary and Joseph was in Bethlehem. So they have to go back to Bethlehem. Now, why Bethlehem? Well, Micah had said it's going to be in Bethlehem. But these guys are descendants of David. And it actually goes further back than... Then Micah, it goes back to the eighth book in your Bible. Eighth book. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that's five. Then Joshua, Judges, and the eighth one is Ruth. And I'll finish here. Ruth. It's got four chapters. But in the book of Ruth, just these four chapters, God orchestrates things so that this woman Ruth marries a man named Boaz, And they have a child, and that child is David's great-grandfather. And it all takes place in Bethlehem. And so David's line comes through Bethlehem. And Micah later says God's going to make sure that He's going to orchestrate things so that the Messiah is going to wind up being born indeed in Bethlehem. And that's why when the census is decreed and they have to go back to the city of their ancestry, they go back to Bethlehem because that's David's line. His great-grandfather was born there. His family was born there. And that's why when the angel appears and he says, born to you this day in the city of, anybody remember? In the city of David is Bethlehem. But that's why. Okay, we'll continue next week. We've got two weeks to cruise through the whole New Testament. So bring your book, bring your seatbelt.